Hey folks, I thought I'd record a little bit of housekeeping just because this is an interesting place. This is the last unplugged show that we've recorded in what is basically season two of MLST. We still have six shows that we have filmed in the last six months or so that we're building intros for, so they'll be coming. But we're probably going to pivot away from this kind of um, Skype conversation style content. Um, I mean, to be honest, we've done really well. I think we know how to polish a Skype conversation and up the production values more than most other podcasts. But I do kind of get the feeling that it's quite cheap and easy to make this content and we're kind of not really, uh, you know, we're strangling our creative potential a little bit. There are so many cool things going on in the AI space at the moment and we've got such a backlog that we can't comment on things and we can't make kind of creative content about things. So, you know, in the future we will still interview people, but it'll probably be this kind of Netflix pedagogical style content first. Anyway, um, so that's it from me. Expect six amazing shows that still need to be released from this season. And then we'll see where we go from there. Cheers. Is there like um, gardening happening in the background, landscaping? I heard a leaf blower maybe. Oh, that might've been my fan. Oh, okay. So that was not a leaf blower. That is a fan. Mm. Uh, I mean, we're not used to getting any warm temperature over here. So anything over 20 degrees centigrade. Yeah, so, um, and I don't know what centigrade means. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not even that hot. Let's have a look. What is 20 degrees? Time, times nine fifths, 36. So that would be 68. 70, 68. Yeah. 68. Not, is that hot? I don't know. I live in San Diego. Yeah, <laughs> probably yeah. for you. It's not. It's not very hot. Yeah. Well, welcome to Street Talk. Today we have Batali Chile. Batali is known as Spicy Chili on Yannick's Discord. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes cool stuff happens not on our Discord, on, on Yannick's Discord, but we'll have to <laughs> allow for that. But uh, Batali is a, a machine learning research engineer at Cerebrus, and we'll get into what Cerebrus does uh, in in a little while. And um, yeah, I mean, basically, Batali, welcome to MLST, and and tell us about yourself and how did you end up here today. Uh, yeah, so I, I went to UCSD and I now live in San Diego. Um, I got my degree in intelligent systems, robotics and controls. And the intelligent systems part is, uh, what the ECE department called, uh, like our AI courses were in there. Um, what, upon graduating, I joined Cerebrus. That was almost, uh, maybe three and a half, almost four years ago. And what Cerebrus does, it. It's amazing. And the, you know, the idea that they pitched when I started was it shocked enough that, you know, I wanted to join and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, three years later, four almost, uh, I'm still there, haven't left, uh, often get asked why I stay so long. And fundamentally it's because the idea is so crazy that I want to see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta agree with that. So when I was, when I was, you know, preparing for this show, reading materials from, uh, Cerebus and, and let me give you my layman's understanding and then you can correct mm -hmm. it, it's, it's what's wrong here. But what really was, was shocking about, it seems as if Cerebus is taking the entire motherboard that you might have in a computer, you know, CPU, memory, routing, everything, shrunk it down into, you know, just a set of transistors only that are sitting there on on a wafer and then builds an entire wafer with all these, all these things, right? So it's producing this wafer scale, as you call it, you know, um, supercomputer really. And what blew me away by it, there was some references to, um, you know, a single one of these Cerebus wafer scale chips, like the CS1 being 200 times faster than a certain supercomputer, which has 84,000 cpus okay and the, and the and they said it's 200 times faster but that seems to almost underestimate the achievement here because eighty-four thousand cpus if i'm doing the math roughly right is about a thousand times that's a thousand wafers okay that's a thousand wafers of silicon to get eighty-four thousand cpus i think uh and you're 200 times faster than that which is which really per silicon on a per silicon basis it's hundreds of thousands of times faster is that correct or am I wrong yeah, here? Um, that, that is correct. Um, I think the thing that you need to, uh, kind of step back and think about when designing a system is what is it going to be good for and what won't it be good for? Um, for instance, you know, 
even though GPUs exist and they're much faster than CPUs at certain workloads, the majority of things don't run on GPUs, whether they don't need that much compute power or they'll, or some workloads are just not, they, they are maybe not as compute bound, but maybe more memory bound. Um, I think the workload or the paper that you're referencing, um, there is, you know, a class of algorithms that all rely under the hood under, um, yeah, we're under the hood. You're effectively solving a PDE, um, and PDEs, uh, and PDE solvers end up being very bandwidth bound. Um, and so, yeah, in that workload, um, we have a, a system with a bunch of little cores, um, which can all communicate to each other and the communication latency and bandwidth between the cores is massively high. Uh, and so when you have a problem that maps well to that kind of setting, um, then that's where Cerebrus has massive wins. Um, and so in effect, what you're really looking for are problems that are extremely maybe parallelizable, um, for lack of a better, better term. Um, and when you have problems that are extremely parallelizable, um, then you can you know, throw massive wafers or massive amounts of compute at them. Um, besides the PDE solver, um, being one of those problems, uh, the, the other big problem that we really target is, uh, is deep learning. Um, and that deep learning is again, one of those problems that ends up being massively quote unquote parallelizable. Um, and people throw mass, massive amounts of GPUs at the problem and they'll um, and they're in, uh, people will in interconnect large amounts of GPUs, um, in order to solve deep learning problems. And instead of interconnecting massive amounts of GPUs and having all the latencies associated with, uh, going off of a chip to a different chip, um, Cerebrus instead just makes a massive chip. Um, yeah. And that's like the, I don't know, the secret sauce for how we scale up, uh, going forward effectively. Yeah. Can you help me with the taxonomy here? Cause I, I know um, Apple, for example, they've just released the M1 and the M2 chips and they're a system on a chip. So they have many different types of system mm -hmm. on a chip, but with Cerebrus, is it just lots of cores on a chip or is it more than that? Uh, it's mostly lots of cores on a chip. So it's, it's like a general accelerator. It's not really, so when Keith said, um, made a comment about the fact that we shrunk down the CPU as well as the accelerator part and the memory and shoved it all in one chip. Uh, I feel like there's a, a little disconnect there. We still have like, um, host processors that, you know, that will say, okay, now, um, that'll effectively, they end up serving as effectively like ways in which we ship data to and from the, the system, uh, when it's needed. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So what does the topology look like? So we, I mean, again, with the M1 chip that has this concept of a unified memory, but I think it is shared. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of bucketed into different regions yeah. and then different cores can access the memory. Um, yeah. So I think that, um, I have friends who work at other, um, silicon companies, uh, and w one of them is like in a research lab for, um, FPGA design and how that interacts and in FPGA, he just calls it like memory with a little bit of compute, uh, thrown in it's, it's for moving data and something that he tries to push at his company. Uh, when I talk to him is the fact that with this new wave of, um, HPC computation, what matters isn't how many flops you can throw at the problem. What really matters is how you move your data and how you manage the data and where the data is stored and all the memory latency and bandwidth issues that come up when training neural networks that is what's going to win the game in the long term um and so like that's the game that we effectively play differently than what um nvidia has done um nvidia has you know their compute cores their their tensor cores and then they have off-chip memory <laughs> um you know, uh, when you talk about the M1 chip, what, or M2 chip from Apple, uh, what they did is they, you know, they have their CPU, GPU kind of all on one chip, and then they have memory that's very closely integrated into that. Um, that kind of limits how much memory they can have, but it also gives them much faster access to that memory potentially. Uh, 
with Cerebris, what we did is we put the memory into the chip itself. And so the, the bulk of the memory that we use is in the chip itself. Um, now this does come at the cost of not being able to have as many flops potentially, because we like end up reserving almost half the chip for memory. Um, and it's about, it's kind of funny, like if you want to think about it, if you reserve about half the chip for memory, then at most you're off by a factor of two, um, of how much like flops you can have versus how many flops you should have versus how much memory you should have. Um, but yeah, so we reserve about half the chip for memory, but that means that we can get really high utilization of our flops. Um, and to kind of put that into perspective, uh, if you take um, NVIDIA's numbers at face value for how quickly they train um, something like ResNet 50. Um, and then you, you know, do the calculation. Um, you can figure out what flop utilization they are getting when training ResNet 50. And I think when I did that, uh, so when the A100 first came out, um, their kernels weren't completely polished, um, but they, I did the math and I think the A100 was getting something like 16% flop utilization for training ResNet 50. Now imagine like this company releases a new chip, tells you to buy it. They advertise all these flop counts and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then you can't actually use any of them because of bandwidth and latency issues. Uh, now, to be fair, I think it's improved since, and I think they're in the low 20% flop utilization, but on the V100, after years of improving their kernels, they got it up to, I think, 25% utilization. And that's, uh, so that's for ResNet 50. And that's like the network that everyone hyper optimizes. Um, and so on the A100, they're probably not going to get past low twenties percent flop utilization. And so as these companies advertise like these massive flop counts, what they end up kind of hiding in the background is like, oh, well, you can't actually use these flops for the standard workloads that you kind of attack. Um, and it's in the same, and the story's kind of the same, because I think um, one of my coworkers was saying that he took, you know, Hugging Faces, um, Burt Large, or Burt Base, one of them. Uh, he ran it, then tried to, you know, back calculate the flop utilization, and it ends up being something like 17%. And you're what? just like, okay, thank you for all these flops, but can I actually use them? And that's where Cerebrus, um, with our, like, with having the majority or of our memory that's like being used on the chip itself with massive amounts of bandwidth, uh, we're aiming for creating kernels with a uh, much better flop utilization. Um, now, like I said, you know, uh, the, when the A100 came out for ResNet 50, their flop utilization was like 16%, then it went up to like 20 something percent. I think currently, you know, our flop utilization, um, isn't at our target, like 70 plus percent flop utilization. It's closer to like 40 for some of the, like for Burt base or whatever else. Um, but we are constantly improving our, our stack, our kernels and, yep. um, our targets are in the, you know, 70, 80% range. Yeah. And the, so for our listeners, you can think of the memory, it's being kind of dithered through, you know, spread evenly throughout the entire, you know, the mm -hmm. entire wafer. And I think that has some, some other trade-offs too. I'm wondering if you can hit on because, um, so you, you know, that case we talked about earlier, that fluid dynamics simulation, it wasn't just that it was parallelizable, but also it's a sparse calculation. You know, if you think of like finite element kind of mesh, you only depend really on your neighborhood of, um, you know, uh, your, your neighborhood of cells and actually the mapping from that problem map directly to the Cerebus chip by kind of assigning those literal finite element cells to, you know, units, um, on the wafer. And so if you're commute, if you only need to communicate with kind of nearby neighbors, the Cerebus chip has this sort of mesh, you know, memory propagation where it can propagate to the neighboring cells and from there to neighboring cells. On the other hand, if you have a dense problem where you might need to go get some values from a far away, you know, um, part of the wafer is there is there a penalty for that is there like some type of shortcut path where you can come back out into like a different bus and then route you know over there like how does that kind of play out in the sparse versus dense um yeah computation? um so our so the memory layout and the fact that you have you know your memory distributed across the chip is a good point um the chip is created to in a way where you know each core has 
a piece of memory next to it and accessing that memory is, uh, is I think it's literally one clock cycle. Um, and then sending memory to like the cores next to you, um, that's also one clock cycle. Um, but then sending memory across the entire chip, um, could end up being a lot longer. Um, now, uh, what is, what is that relationship? Like, is it like, what if it's two cells away? Is that four clock cycles or how does that work? I think it's literally two clock cycles. Uh, I wouldn't quote myself on that. <laughs> I'm not a kernel writer. They're, they're more keen on like, yeah, what sure. that Just actually means and how quickly it propagates. But, um, yeah, so the way that our, chi- our cores are designed is that they are, um, what I like to call maybe like a coarse grained, uh, programmable array or yeah, like, um, when you think of like FPGAs, you literally program like the, the transistor at the transistor level effectively. Um, whereas for us, you program at the core level and then these cores, you launch some program on them and then they just run and they're kind of independent on, of everything else. The way that computation or anything is triggered in our cores is, um, using a data flow architecture. Uh, effectively where the core is kind of in a wait state and compute is triggered once, uh, this once data comes in through one of the buses. So there's, uh, I don't remember how many buses, uh, effectively each core has, cause it ends up changing with the generations. Interesting. It's like a cellular automata almost, right? Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So when you talk about like moving data. Um, let's say that data comes in on one of the, I think our first generation had 24 buses. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, it comes in on one of the buses. Um, the core then knows like, okay, if I get data from here, I do this compute. Alternatively, if I get data from like this bus, then I end up shipping it further. Uh, If I get data from here, I, you know, do this thing. Um, and that's what triggers computation is the arrival of data. So this is like a data flow architecture, which is different from like how GPUs, um, yeah, fascinating. Work, which is really cool. And it means that like when data arrives on a bus, it can just then be shipped to the, to the next core. And I think the hops are take literally one, um, one clock cycle. Um, so like, you know, 10 hops away means, or yeah. 10 cores away means it's going to take 10 clock cycles. Generally speaking when we program things or when we write kernels, uh, we try to minimize how much data movement is needed for going like to the other side of the wafer. Cause most times you don't need to go that far necessarily. So it sounds like it's a decentralized design because I, I had this conversation all the time. So whether it's your organization, source code, data, software, apparently even CPUs, there's this dichotomy between centralized or non-centralized. And you said that NVIDIA's architecture is very slow uh, on, on flop efficiency for this type of workload. And so if I understand correctly, you've kind of introduced memory efficiency to reclaim the flops inefficiency. And that works particularly well for certain use cases. But I mean, are there any use cases where having the centralized monolithic approach would be faster? Yeah. So I, I okay. If we're going to give NVIDIA their due, um, what the NVIDIA system can do really well is massive matrix matrix multiplies. Um, effectively, like if you can prefetch a bunch of stuff, then the memory issues could potentially go away. And so like when we talk about training, uh, Burt base, I was saying they were getting like 17% flop utilization, but if you, you know, create a wider version of BERT, uh, and if you get to like the size of GPT, um, then you start pushing that 70% flop utilization because you end up, um, there's so when you, when you train like the 175 billion, uh, parameter GPT three, you end up pushing that 75% flop utilization, um, because you could hide a lot of, uh, latency issues, um, behind, uh, thread concurrency and like, uh, running like putting a thread to sleep running or act cause it's waiting for memory and then like, uh, launching another thread, um, in the foreground, 
on the core. And so the core ends up being always busy. Uh, and in effect, you the wider the matrix multiply you do, the better the flop count ends up being, or the flop utilization ends up being on GPUs. Um, so something that you can say is that, you know, when you scale uh, neural network training, you get better flop utilization on GPUs. Um, the caveat there is then you also need to interconnect massive amounts of GPUs in order to, uh, to be able to scale. And then the inefficiency between transferring from one GPU to another GPU could end up being a headache in its, uh, in its own right. Um, so there are, there are trade-offs there. Then, uh, the other thing that, you know, um, or the other high level way to, to look at this is whenever you have a workload where you are not bandwidth bound, um, then you're okay to run on GPUs. Um, another way to, to say that is maybe like if the arithmetic, uh, arithmetic intensity of a workload. So like the amount of fl flops you do per memory access, if that is high, then you're okay to run on GPUs. Well, so I think there's another caveat here too, though, that your CEO, um, Andrew Feldman, I think talked about in an interview, which is that, yeah, you can perform a matrix multiplication very efficiently on a GPU, a massive matrix yeah. multiplication. But mm -hmm. if it's a sparse matrix, then, you know, if, if 80% of your entries are zero, then you're performing a very fast, but useless, you know, kind of bunch of computation there. And, and Yan LeCun brings up that, you know, as neural networks get larger and larger, the sparsity problem is going to be continue to become worse, at least for ReLU, you know, networks. So isn't there mm -hmm. kind of a fundamental trade-off there too? Yeah. So that is something that like, um, we support as maybe a first class, one of our first class design principles for our system was supporting sparsity. Um, and then that's true. Um, if you. Yeah, as you get larger, do we need that much connectivity and how much of those weights end up going to zero anyways during the training process is, is kind of an open question. Uh, either way, they have like some, with the sparse training, there are setups um, where it seems like sparsity does provide for you relatively large wins. Um, and that's what Cerebras wants to, you know, showcase and um, what Cerebras enables. Um, yeah. Okay, because um, you said before that in a way it's like building a straw man. You said NVIDIA works really, really well when you've got these huge matrices uh, to multiply in memory, but um, neural networks don't work like that, right? That I don't think we should think of them as monoliths. They are very, very structured, extremely structured. They have this weird um, property. By the way, we spoke to um, uh, Jonathan Frankel about this back in the day. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, they, they kind of like starts off as a level playing field and then very, very quickly the structure emerges. And as you say, you can throw away almost all of the neurons in the neural network and it doesn't make any difference. But if you do think of them as being sparse, then this very decentralized approach in, in you know, the Cerebrus architecture, it just seems to follow naturally, right? Yeah. Um... I don't, like if you think of them as very sparse, I don't know if the decentralized approach is what matters so much as having an architecture that can support sparsity. Now, this decentralized approach can support sparsity, and we do, um, but there might be others that that do support it. So I don't want to write off everyone who can support sparsity because they're not taking this decentralized approach. Um, the The thing that sparsity fundamentally requires is very low latency, um, high bandwidth memory. And that's why NVIDIA effectively has issues with it. Um, in order for NVIDIA to get high flop utilization, like I said earlier, what it needs to do is, you know, launch a thread, um, tell that that thread will then try to access its memory and that thread will go to sleep while it's accessing memory and the next thread will be launched. Um, the problem with that is when you compile that kernel, you need to tell it what memory to access. Whereas if your memory is high, low latency, high bandwidth, then you can tell your cores which memory to access at runtime instead of needing to do it um, at compile time, 
because like the the prefetching rec- ends up like um yeah the other thing that nvidia kind of has issues why nvidia will have issues with sparsity is because of their memory access patterns when they access memory um when i took you know gpu programming courses uh years ago the way that gpus access memory this was like pre tensor cores even so it's even worse now but the way that they access memory is you tell it access give me this piece of memory and the gpu ends up assuming that the next core is going to ask for the next piece of memory and the next core is going to ask for the next piece of memory and so when the gpu when you launch a kernel and you say access this piece of memory it starts giving you 32 pieces of memory um and as gpu generations have gone up i think that 32 has gone up as well prefetch um, yeah it, it needs to prefetch memory as a result if all you need is one of those elements and you don't need the 32 because sparsity you you only need one or two of those 32 elements well, you just got a ton of elements shipped to you um and you just consumed a massive amount of bandwidth when you already don't have a lot of bandwidth uh per compute in gpus so i think you i think you just um, taught me something very interesting because I was in trying to wrap my head around why Cerebus would be good for, you know, sparse calculation. I kept falling back to old ways of doing sparse calculations. And, and most of those were all about how can I take the sparse thing and compact it, you know, like get rid of the zeros and put all the stuff that matters into a smaller memory block. And then therefore I'm not, you know, going to all these, I, I don't have to span large amounts of memory that's mostly zero. And so And I think that was all to do exactly what you were talking about, which is to evade the difficulty of high latency, you know, kind of, kind of memory architecture. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the way Cerebus solves the sparsity problem is not by compacting the memory, really. Like there's going to be lots of memory on the Cerebus wafer that's zero, but it just can get to the non-zero stuff very quickly and it can decide where that non-zero stuff is at runtime. Am I understanding correctly? Kind of, kind of no. Okay. Um, so because we have a data flow architecture, uh, like I mentioned, the compute is triggered once the data comes to it. Um, the data flow architecture effectively um, means that as we propagate activations through the system, um, when an activation ends up arriving at its correct core, or um, then the activation will end up accessing some uh some weight from the local memory those will be multiplied and then uh accumulation chain will happen along like the multiple cores that you did the that the tensors is split across um the way that like we originally engineered it is that if an activation is zero then you never have to propagate it at all it just doesn't exist in memory nor does it just exist at all so I'm no. trying to understand that is this is this quite similar to having the concept of a lazily evaluated graph and you're kind of traversing that graph rather than monolithically computing because the reason that I want to get an intuition is I know that the, the Cerebrus chip has near linear speed up in respect of sparsity and I'm thinking well you've got a distributed architecture I mean I appreciate even in monolithic memory it's still scattered all over the place and so there are access patterns and so on but now you need to move it all around all of these different memory stores all over the place um is there not a cost associated with that uh there is and so yeah like you said it's nearly linear scale up with sparsity uh, but it's not linear um one of the issues that you end up having is uh how do you at runtime like let's say that you eventually the neural network um learns to love a set of neurons for all samples and therefore all like that part of the neural network on that part of the wafer ends up being dense and therefore the compute is always on there and on a different part of the network uh it learns to you know have it off most of the time um and the the question becomes can you load balance um training effectively like can you during runtime effectively redistribute that kernel such that it ends up consuming the the cores spatially um equally um it's a you know it's kind of well 
you end up doing it with heuristics and sometimes you can't always do it. Sometimes you can. Um, and then also I feel like we've, we kind of ended up talking a little bit more about, or I ended up talking a little bit more about, um, activation sparsity. Um, but there's also the like concept of weight sparsity, which is what most people end up researching, um, in the field and with weight sparsity, um, I think that there are, there's a lot of nuance in how like things run on our system. Uh, and yeah. the way that you end up compiling ends up kind of dictating what you're targeting, uh, what kind of sparsity you can target as, as well. Um, because at, at the end of the day, um, you have, let's say a matrix matrix multiply, um, there are there's maybe like one, uh, FPGA, um, compiled multiplier where both the activation matrix and the weight matrix can be sparse. It's kind of like a prototype that like people are playing around with, but in general, you get to either have the activations be sparse or the weights be sparse. Um, if you look at NVIDIA's like inference sparsity, um, it's their weights that are sparse, not their activations. Um, in our system, depending on how you compile, you can have either the weights be sparse or the activations be sparse. Yeah. Why can't you have both at the same time? And just for the benefit of our audience as well, can you just briefly, I know you did a little bit, but just in a bit more detail, the difference between weight sparsity and activation sparsity. Uh, yeah. So activation sparsity ends up, you know, existing in neural networks, um, very naturally because, uh, let's say you do your convolution, then you apply a ReLU. And in general, about half of your activations are automatically zeros. Um, on the weight sparsity side, um, you know, let's say you, you have a matrix, you start training it and some of the weights go to zero. And those are, you know, those are two different sparsities where either your activations, um, are sparse in one setting and your weights are sparse in the other setting. Uh, when you have hardware that can support sparsity in general, um, it is one of those matrices that ends up being sparse. And like I said, in, in NVIDIA's A100 and now H100, um, they support weight sparsity only, um, within sparsity within a block. And that's how they get, a, that's how they, um, get away with, or do their load balancing is, um, the sparsity ends up being in a single block. And if you have that kind of structured sparsity, then you kind of know that all your cores are end up going to end up doing like 50% of the work, um, some version of that. Uh, and for our system, we also support only one of the matrices being sparse. Um, because I said, like, no one has really cracked having both weight and activation sparsity, um, especially for training for inference, maybe somebody will do it pretty soon. Like I said, there's a FPGA, um, prototype that people are, you know, playing around with, but for training, it ends up like the network ends up being a lot more dynamic and the load balancing ends up being a lot more dynamic. And as a result, um, you kind of need to stick to one, solve that problem. Maybe sometime in the future, people will have be able to support both matrices being sparse, but that's not the reality that we live in now. Um, and so when on our system, um, before you run the neural network, you kind of have to choose, do I want to focus on weight sparsity or do I want to focus on, uh, activation sparsity? Um, I think the majority of the research in the field focuses on weight sparsity. Um, and so that's kind of the one that we're probably going to design kernels for better in the long term, uh, but we'll see. Well, let me let me ask you why that is the case because you know the weight sparsity, at least in so many architectures, uh, isn't you know doesn't naturally happen. Like they naturally end up with you know dense weights because it's very rare for the optimizer to force something identically to zero. It may make it really small or whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas activation sparsity for anyone who uses ReLU or any other kind of well, not any other, but any piecewise linear thing that has a zero region, you know, can end up with, um, mm -hmm. with that. So why is the focus on weight sparsity and not activation sparsity? And by the way, ditto the human brain, right? Which is, it has activation sparsity, 
not so much weight sparsity. Uh, okay. So I, first, I don't like comparing to the human brain. Uh, that's just me personally. <laughs> I don't try to do that. Okay. Ever. Uh, I don't know if you guys love it or not. You guys, I mean, some people do it on Keep the podcast. Those. I love it. Personally, I stay away. <laughs> um, secondly, uh, so most, when you use Relu, uh, you get sparsity automatically and a lot of neural networks were built with ReLU, but if you look at all the modern neural networks, most of them target something like Swish, uh, or JLU. Um, and yes, there are zero regions in those, but it is relatively uncommon to have identically zero, um, activations, or it's very, a lot less common to have zero activations with weight sparsity. You're also right. It like, uh, naturally SGD isn't going to push you towards zero automatically, but there are, um, tricks that people play that if a weight is, so there's like, uh, algorithms such as wriggle, for instance, where if a, if a weight is close to zero, you just set it to zero. Um, and you keep training the neural network and, you know, you check once in a while. And if the gradient of that weight is, or that zero weight is very high, then you know that that weight doesn't want to be zero anymore. So you turn it back on. Um, yeah. so there are algor algorithms like that where you can, you know, tell the training setup, okay, we're going to use sparsity in the weights and, uh, and we're going to train sparse. Um, yeah. that's kind of one that we do. I think, I think we should get back to wriggle in a minute, because that's a really cool algorithm from Google that allows you to kind of iteratively sparsify a neural network. But, um, I mean, to Keith's point, I don't think it's necessarily zero, which means something is sparse. I, I think like with iterative magnitude pruning, doesn't it look at the, um, the, the gradient of the weight basically. So when, when the, when it stops moving in the optimization runtime, then we think of it as being dead and we prune it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be zero. I mean, if you, if you just prune a weight, even if, so let's say it stops moving and it's, let's say it's value is five. Um, if it's within, you know, a matrix multiply, it's, it's converged to five. If you remove that weight, then you effectively apply a gradient step that is pretty large because oh, you're so going it needs from to five be zero. to zero. Yeah. So it needs to be zero for oh, it to that's be effectively pruned. Or else you're, no, okay. yeah, because then you're applying not a, because it's not a gradient, but you're applying a step in some random direction that is nowhere related to the gradient itself. Um, okay. Okay, yeah. cool. Cool. Well, um, I mean, one other thing as well is that if, if you can't have your cake and eat it and have sparsity and, and um, activations and weights, doesn't it defeat the purpose? Uh -huh. Because the whole point of this thing is to kind of dramatically improve the memory complexity of the network. And if one of those guys is still huge, then does that you know, what's the cash value of that? Yeah. So the, the reason that like our system can't support both necessarily at the same time, um, is because when I talked about the activations being sparse, um, it was the, the sparse activations that we just did not send through our data flow architecture. When the weights are sparse, then it is the sparse weights that we do not send through the data flow architecture. Um, but in the you know, um, in the memory itself on the chip, um, you can still have like, so like if your weights are massively sparse, there's nothing that says that your activation or this, um, this output activation will be zero unless like an entire row of the weight matrix is zeros. And if the entire row of the weight matrix is zeros, then just like get rid of it and don't have that activation in memory, just have a narrower network. Okay. But, the, uh, but I think if I understood you correctly, yeah. the, the limitation, like the reason I choose between one of these two things is, um, and I'm probably not going to say this right, but there's almost like a, um, a routing that gets compiled into the, into the, the mesh, if you will, the CPU mesh ahead of time. And that routing and that sort of routing is always going to take place. So like, in other words, if a packet enters the kind of network, it's always going to follow like whatever route is compiled in there. And so therefore whatever's going to be mm -hmm. dense, you compile into that routing 
And then whatever sparse ends up happening at runtime based on message passing through that network. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's, that sounds correct. Okay. I'm sure that someone at Cerebrus is going to tell me that I said something incorrectly in the next, you know, week or something, but uh, at a high level, that well, sounds what's, correct. what's interesting is you're right. Like this, the Cerebus architecture is so nuanced and to me, it's just, it's fascinating. I can see why you, why you still work there. And, uh, <laughs> just based yeah. off of what we've been talking about, what we'd heard, I'd highly recommend other, you know, people consider working there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like one of the things that really attracted me to it is, you know, um, in the very beginning when like, we, we kind of tell ourselves this story, um, internally where, you know, back in the early two thousands, late nineties, um, people ran neural networks on CPUs, um, and ran machine learning algorithms on CPUs and they were relatively slow and, you know, machine learning wasn't really seen as a tool that could be used for anything really exciting. Um, yes, you know, machine learning had its ups and downs, but you know, that was kind of, it, it had its limitations because we couldn't run a lot of data through it. And then in 2012, um, Alex Krzyzewski, uh, mapped a neural network to a GPU, which had way more compute, um, and more bandwidth between the, the, the cores than you would have if you like interconnected a bunch of CPUs. And as a result, um, ended up getting about like a 20 X speed up for training neural networks and his work is a, why we all know his name, Alex net, um, and is B it effectively lit the fire of like all of us looking at like neural network training, um, and what it can do. Yeah. Um, apologies to Schmidt Huber if he's listening. Uh, Schmidt, <laughs> Schmidt Huber would say it was Dan that in 2011. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. Um, but yeah, like, uh, the, the proposition of Cerebris is that we have a chip that is, you know, something like 56 times larger and we can run neural networks. You know, the AlexNet revolution happened when we ran something that was 20 times faster. Um, with the Cerebrus chip, when we run things, if they end up being, um, you know, 20 to 50 times faster, then you can run on a, uh, on a GPU, where is that next revolution and what can we unlock in the neural network space that people haven't been able to explore mm -hmm. easily or well on GPUs? Um, and you know, what is going to be the the neural network that we will all know in the future. What, what is going to be that Cerebris net? Um, that's kind of what some of the, uh, some of the team at Cerebris is exploring. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate that, that you're saying hardware can unlock a revolution and potentially there are some undiscovered phenomena that might exist at the larger scales of neural networks. I mean, I, I can get on board with that, yeah. but I mean, why don't we just unpack the sparsity thing a little bit more? So, um, yeah, wh where to start? So most of the sparsification algorithms are what I would call, you know, kind of dense to sparse algorithms, which means you're computationally bound by the size of the bigger network. So then it becomes a way of efficiently, you know, productionizing models for inference and they work nearly as well. But this is a deliberately like ambiguous question. Why do we need to start with the dense version? Why do we need to start with the dense version? Um, I don't think we do. So there, there are okay. two schools of thoughts and, and like, uh, something that we argue about on our like internal research team sometimes um there's the school of thought where you should start dense and then go to sparse uh there's the other one where you should start sparse stay sparse there's a third one where you should start sparse go dense and then sparsify again for inference um so there's a whole load of ways that you could do it um the argument for starting dense then going sparse is the uh explore exploit argument effectively where you want to start dense because you want to effectively be able to explore the entire space at the beginning and then once your neural network has settled into a regime where it has found out that okay this subset of weights is is tending towards zero zero them out and exploit the rest of the structure um that you know that's one camp 
the other camp is a little more empirical maybe um you know you talk you can talk all you want about the explore ex exploit paradigm of training neural networks and you should start you know dense then prune and go uh exploit the sparse structure but at the same time if we just go full sparse right away it doesn't look like we necessarily lose a ton um the caveat there is you still have to use an, uh, like a relatively smart algorithm to um to search the entire space so you you still end up needing to do the explore part and that's kind of what um wriggle does or helps you do is you can still explore the entire weight space without necessarily needing to do the dense computation one of the exploration algorithms evolutionary algorithms like is there any ability for cerebus to speed up ea algorithms because if you want to start sparse and stay sparse then the ea algorithms at least give you some exploration you know capability in an arbitrary environment including a sparse environment yeah um something that's uh, that we talk about in at cerebris is like let the sparsity algorithm end up designing the network um or designing the network and so you could talk about the the using an ea algorithm to design a neural network alternatively you could just say let let's just make a massive monolithic network and then run our sparsity algorithm in the background and let that sparsity algorithm end up converging to whatever structure hmm. um and so like the, yeah something that you know has been stated is that like uh sparsity is a neural architecture search in itself in a way um but yeah looking at the ea algorithms to inform sparsity i don't know if we've done that um necessarily it's a good idea oh be cool i did but but i mean a minute ago you, you were kind of saying you know you could start dense and sparsify or you could start sparse and you could kind of you know work from that um because it, it feels like when when you've got this highly dimensional parameter space starting sparse just it seems it seems like an impossibility a bit like the curse of dimensionality i mean how the hell could you possibly find anything useful and um i read the the wriggle paper when i was doing the intro for jeff hawkins uh, so i don't remember it very well but i remember that I, I don't know whether it's fair to say that it's starting sparse I, as i recall it, it was kind of layer by layer it was like densifying and sparsifying and then redensifying is, is something uh, like that is that a fair characterization so so it does start sparse, the Riggle um, algorithm. There are some that start dense and do the sparsification, but uh, Riggle in itself does start sparse. Um, what Riggle ends up doing is effectively it chooses a random sparsity. Um, it trains those weights for a set amount of time. And then you end up kind of surveying all the weights and saying, okay, which of these weights are tending towards zero? I'm going to get rid of those weights. And then you look at all the, the, the weights that are not active and you, uh, and you end up saying, okay, which of these weights have very high gradient values. And if they have very high gradient values, that kind of tells you that they don't want to be zero. They want to move away from zero, or at least currently they want to move away from zero. So you reactivate those weights, um, so that they can, you know, keep looking. Uh, and, the, and this is kind of how wriggle, even though you start completely sparse um you can still search the entire space of weights um because you end up killing weights that are tending towards zero and then you end up reviving the weights that are interesting yeah because i mean a, a neural network i mean i, I use the uh, terminology when we spoke to frank was like a block of clay and you can chip away at it and you can create any structure that will sing your tune and mm -hmm. presumably because of all of the symmetries and all the various different things that it can do that there are there's almost uncountably many structures you could find in that parameter space mm -hmm. um, and wriggle as i understand it does robustly find great sets of weights for a whole bunch of problems um but yeah what's the intuition why is it possible to start sparse and build up well that's the thing like i i personally like when we talk about intuition i argued uh or i tend to argue for the uh explore exploit route where you start dense and then go sparse um i don't have good because that's what my intuition tells me to do um in the like first stages of training you can do a massive exploration if you start dense and then go sparse 
And that was my intuition always. But at the same time, empirically, um, it seems to work. And I don't know if I have a great intuition for it right now, but, um, like I said, the wriggle algorithm still does do effectively an explore. It's just a slightly longer explore where it, it's explore stage is, um, you know, explore these, this subset of weights and then, you know, revive new weights. Um, I think okay. there was, there is some research where they look at how many weights end up being touched on using the wriggle algorithm for training. And if you tune it correctly, then the algorithm will end up reviving all the weights at least, uh, once, or it's something like 95% of the weights at least once during the training setup. So it still does explore all the weights or touch upon okay. all the weights. So, I mean, a couple of places to go from here. I mean, first of all, a lot of these inductive priors, they are ways of introducing parameter efficiency. And mm -hmm. in theory, if you have something like Riggle, you could just start with a huge MLP and, and you could do the same thing you're doing with the CNNs and the transformers. I mean, um, I guess like the question is if Riggle does do what we, you know, what it says it does, then we should be able to discover all of this interesting phenomena at a higher scale, which would have taken a larger dense network to discover. And so far we haven't found anything, right? Uh, nothing that I feel like translates to like, oh, okay, this looks exactly like convolution. Um, if we start like from a dense matrix, a convolution is a linear layer, therefore it can be represented within a, you know, a, a matrix. And so like, theoretically, if you started with a dense matrix and ran wriggle on it and input CV images, would it find a convolution? Uh, I don't know if I've seen anyone show that it has or could. Um, and yeah, that that's kind of like the thing about neural networks is in the hidden layer after the first hidden layer or whatever, um, at that point, what is the neural network representing? None of us know. And so would it represent a convolution or would it converge to a convolution or would wriggle like help that matrix converge to a convolution? It's, uh, it's hard to say that it would. We don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's kind of the crux of, you know, the question that a lot of people have in their mind is going back to the dense to sparse versus, you know, start sparse and stay sparse or, or vice versa. Is that if you look at the kinds of, um, inductive priors that people come up with, uh, that, that we put in that has dramatic effects on performance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually something sparse. Like, let me take this little three by three thing and, and just move it around, i.e. everything else in the matrix yeah. is zero. So I had this, you know, or, uh, how about a dropout layer? Like, I'm just going to throw in something and just chop out entire, you know, parts of like, we always come up with these sparse sparsifications almost. Uh, I mean, there are some exceptions like, sure, let's come up with a, how about lasso the old school, you know, um, sparsifying technique and linear you know, linear regression where I just add a, a weight, which is the absolute sum of the, the, you know, slopes, the betas or whatever. And it, and it kind of magically forces a lot of them to, to zero, you know? So, I mean, we just keep coming up with these ways to add discreteness and sparsity. Um, and that's why I think mm -hmm. there may be a lot of doubt that, uh, starting dense and that you're ever going to get to those kind of sparse, almost like, a computational program, like um things in a network yeah like definitely like the what the sparsity algorithms will find is is definitely an open question um i think the the biggest issue that i see with that open question is even if they converge to something and let's say that i go through the look at the weights of a neural network and i look you know scour it and I find something that looks like a convolution, am I only finding that because I want it to look like a convolution or is it actually like doing something that is like how much of that will, as we, you know, venture down that path of research, how much of that research will end up being cherry picked sure. um, is what I worry about. Um, and so like, yeah, I don't know how easy it will be to say, ah, uh, yes, this is this is a convolution or this looks like wh whatever you want to say. Right. Like, um, like the neural network may decide first to, uh, Fourier transform the inputs and then just do a dense multiplication of vectors because that's the equivalent of convolution and 
Fourier space and then it yeah. inverts it somewhere and like you have no idea so <laughs> yeah and yeah and, and i don't i personally don't think that we should start like down that path because it'll end up being cherry picking but maybe some people find it super interesting and maybe they'll find something that's actually cool well and i think that's what kind of the agi people or, or folks that are very optimistic let's say about the um, artificial intelligence capability is you know they would argue that right which is why are you trying to force on the neural network you know convolution like that's such a human type of calculation that we came up with that fits in human math you know artificially intelligent math may come up with some really bizarre you know computation that's so far beyond human cognition and yet it works just as well or, or maybe even much much better because it does some really bizarre yeah if we can anthropomorphize lambda then we can absolutely anthropomorphize our inductive prize <laughs> <laughs> fair enough yeah I think the, it, in my perspective, the inductive priors that we throw at neural networks, we throw at neural networks because they save resources and, or, well, A, they work, um, B, they work on the hardware that we have. Um, and so like, you know, the, the GPUs being a graphics processor, they can do convolutions, um, at least somewhat well. And. As a result, you know, if we want to process a neural network and we don't want to store massive weight matrices for dense matrix, well, you know, we don't have the resources to store weight matrices that large. Let's instead store this little three by three thing and then weight share it across the entire image. And okay, look at all the resources that we saved. And that's kind of, I think, what ends up happening for a lot of the, um, you know, it's not how we pitch it like oh i'm using this convolution because it saves me resources we say oh it's you know it maps well to images so obviously it should be used um but i think somewhere in the back of everyone's head we kind of need to acknowledge that it's saving yeah. us resources um so that we can run potentially and larger neural networks and we can do more cool things with them um yeah there might be a cost though. I mean, I, I think there's an interesting continuum of how principled these inductive priors are. And as you say, you can, you, you can pitch it as they're saving resources. But, um, just, uh, I mean, we're, we're doing a Chomsky intro at the moment. So we're reading all about Newton and how he threw away this, you, you know, like the early scientists had a very mechanistic view of how the world worked. They thought the world was a machine. Mm -hmm. And then uh, all of that went out the window when he uh, discovered his theory of gravity. And then, um, from that point on, most of science was about creating models of reality, and we just kind of threw away any notion that we could understand reality. We called it the ghost in the machine. But I suppose it's a similar thing with these inductive priors now that to a certain extent, we're not really deluding ourselves that we can, you know, really understand computation and reality. It's just something which is a temporary expedient. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I personally, I think uh, I've mentioned to, to Keith, um, one of the things that I want to like play around with at Cerebrus is the concept of just forget the inductive bias, throw a ma massive matrix, uh, matrix multiplier, massive matrix multiplies at the, at the problem and see if you converge or can do as well on ImageNet as you could with ResNet, uh, or what amount of resources does it take to do that well? Um, and then I, I, the reason that I haven't really like do this too much is because I kind of want to take it even a step further. Um, and instead of doing it with matrix multiplies, do it with a full on DAG. Um, so something that, you know, um, that I, I noted earlier is GPUs require these matrix, massive matrix, matrix multiplies in order to get good flop utilization. Our system is designed to get good flop utilization from, uh, from just vector, uh, scalar multiplies. Um, and so if you have, you know, a connectivity matrix, you can have, you know, the, the input as your input neurons, and then you can create the next neuron using those. And then you can create the next neuron using effectively that vector times a weight matrix. Right. Um, and so you could just have effectively like the next element created as a vector vector multiply uh with the weight matrix of all the previous um neurons um and so there's no concept of the layer at all and uh and then when you throw sparsity into those uh vector vector matrix uh, multiplies 
at that point, it begins to look like a pure DAG almost with, or that connectivity matrix begins to look like a pure DAG. Um, and there's, a the, the, when you look at that connectivity matrix, let's say if you cut, you know, squares into it, where everything outside of those squares is zero, um, then you end up getting like an MLP, um, effectively. And like, there's a team looking at, um, or yeah, one of the pitches for an alternative compiler for our system is just to have one kernel and you let sparsity define the, the shape of the neural network. And so you don't actually have to write multiple corner kernels for, any, for anything. You just have sparsity define the, uh, the structure. Um, and so like, and you just write a kernel that does like one massive DAG computation. Um, something that else that you can use that for though, is to run a massive DAG and give it no inductive bias and see what it does. Um, and so they're, they're playing around with, or that, that team is playing around with like, how, how do we use this as a compiler? And they're writing a kernel for it. And I'm playing around with, um, effectively hijacking some of their work and trying to get a data loader, you know, compiling with it, um, to, to try to run a weird DAG, uh, setup. Well, Hey, crazy question for you. Does it have to be acyclic? Like why on your chip can't I run a possibly cyclic graph and just compute for a period of time and see you if can. it stabilizes? You can, uh, at that point though, if you look at it, the connectivity matrix or connectivity setup, like the next neuron is created using the previous neuron. And even if they are pointing to the same point in memory, um, you're still creating a, a new neuron effectively. Right. Well, I'm thinking about these kind of like, like we talked, you know, these self-repairing cellular automata where it just kind of sits there and keeps okay. running this calculation that's, that's cyclic, but of course there's, there is timing, you know, but it just runs yeah, for yeah. a while. And then if it reaches some equilibrium, maybe that's the answer. Yeah, maybe, uh, it's not something that I was going to throw in at the beginning, but maybe as a <laughs> next step, if it's needed, I don't know. Why have the inductive prior of, uh, acyclic? You know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, final question before you go, do you think okay. neural networks can be characterized as locality sensitive hashing tables? Ah, uh, <laughs> um, so where didn't you guys do a, uh, a podcast with a guy that had three paper? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel like a lot of that or that, that entire conversation almost was premised upon the fact that you're using ReLUs, um, or any piecewise linear activation function. Yeah. yeah. Does anyone still use things like that? Or does everyone just use, you know? Yeah. ReLUs but so this is, this is a bit of like, switch. and we've gone back and forth with people in the comments on this too. Like, yeah, yes. The theory, um, in order for the proof to be valid requires that it be a piecewise linear function. Okay. But on the other hand, do any of us really legitimately believe that the little bump or the tiny little curve thing or something in the activation yeah. is where the neural network is spending all its time, you know, focusing all its parameters? I don't think so. Like, and I, and yeah. I know from practical well, experience that it's off into the, into the linear regions, like 95% of the time. It's, it's not, it's not just that though. I think that the main idea, as I understand it, is that neural networks are a space partitioning scheme. And doesn't matter what activation function you use, the whole purpose of neural networks is to like, you know, figure out these interesting polytopes that surround your training data. Yeah. But then you're just saying that, uh, like a neural network ends up, you know, seeing a vector in some space and then it maps it to an output class or whatever. Um, yep. Well, yeah. It, it is a function at the end of the day. It's a, it's a function. No, no, it's, it's, it's more than that. We're saying more than that, which is that, that by their nature, what neural networks do is they chop up, they keep chopping, they chop the space. They take a look yeah. if this area is confused, they chop it up some more. If it's still confused, they chop it up some more. And it doesn't matter if these, if these cuts are linear, if they're sharp cuts, or if they have a little bit of like fuzziness, a little curvature to it, mm -hmm. that's not changing what they're fundamentally doing, which is they're hierarchically chopping up the space into progressively finer and finer buckets until the, the nice little linear affine transformation 
gets it all correct. Like, I think that's, you know, that's really like a pretty important insight, which is that the way in which neural networks are kind of solving the hard problem of dealing with nonlinearity is not by finding some like nice, smooth, you know, thing. They're just chop, 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 chop into higher and higher resolution buckets until like I've got enough resolution to fit everything with, with lines, basically with hyperplanes. Yeah. Uh, and I, t- I mean, I feel like it's almost impossible to disagree with that statement. Like when you, oh, it's possible. You yeah. can look in our comments. Well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, when I watched that podcast, uh, yeah, like it, it high level made sense to me. My only like issue with it was it seemed like the, the theory was only like perfect with Relu's, uh, and so like it became hard to say that it like is a theoretical results for all neural networks. But when you take a neural or when you take a look at neural networks as a whole, um, it still seems to make sense because like realistically yeah. I can represent most nonlinearities as a piece or approximate most non-linear, or all nonlinearities as piecewise linear functions. So no, that that's, so that's, that's totally fair. I think for me, it was just, I don't know, you know, maybe because I started a long time ago, like thinking about neural networks cause, cause I'm, I'm getting kind of old now, but, but, uh, you know, I used to, I used to think really before that process of preparing for that interview, that that little smoothness, that little bump, you know, the little smooth areas of these activation functions were where the magic was happening. And, and it shattered my kind of dreams there. And like, now I realize yeah. it's really just chopping things up. I mean, I, yeah. I think that the, the context of that show was all about extrapolation and, and extrapolation is, is a slippery word. So, you know, Yan McCoon mm-hmm. meant it to be, um, outside the convex hull of the training data and. Um, I think Chomet would say in a very general sense, extrapolation is about, you know, taking an additional piece of information and converting it uh, into a new situation and experience space, which is far away from anything I've seen in training. And if you do have this idea that you're just kind of decomposing the Euclidean space into these little polytopes, then it, to, to my mind, it throws away the notion that they can possibly extrapolate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't see a, a world in which we can extrapolate easily with the paradigm that we have. Um, yeah. Oh, was it? That was easy. That. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, anyway, we should, on that bombshell, we should wrap up. But uh, Vitaly Chile, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you for having me. All right. Pleasure. Pleasure. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, hit the subscribe button because the next show we're going to release will be with Professor Noam. Chomsky, the most important intellectual of the 20th century. Yeah, you don't want to miss it. See you later.